Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 154, Having It Offa. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Sean, Luke, and Angela for contributing already. Today, we're covering more about King Offa. And the reason is, well, he's a really big deal. He reigned for about as long as King Henry VIII. He constructed one of the wonders of the world. He was the starting point for the continuous use of currency in England. Alfred the Great ranked Offa's laws alongside Ethelbert of Kent and Inna of Wessex. He was the first English king to deal with continental politics as an independent ruler, if not an equal. And frankly, he had a much bigger impact upon British history than virtually every other monarch or Roman emperor we've covered so far. Also, he could wear a hairband like a boss. Portland runners beware, Offa was rocking your look long before it was cool. Look at his coins. The dude looked like he walked out of a Wes Anderson movie. Though, I think the Royal Tenenbaums would have had a different tone if it involved all the kinslaying that Offa's story has. But hey, that's pretty much a normal Tuesday for the Heptarchy. So yeah, we're covering more about King Offa because there's plenty more to cover, and he's one of the most important kings that you've never heard of. And today is going to be one of those days that you might want to have a look at the Heptarchy genealogy on the site because we're going to have some pretty complex family drama and even more complex family trees going on here. So last week, we talked about how in 784 or 785, King Egbert II of Kent died, and King Aelmund took the throne of Kent. And then, he promptly disappeared. Now, Kirby asserts that prior to this disappearance, Kent was independent, and Sussex might have been more under Kent's umbrella than Mercia's. And Kent might have been quite beefy at this point. I mean, it does look like they beat Mercia in battle earlier. And that could explain why Aylman's son, who also happened to be named Egbert, was a mover and shaker in nearby Wessex. Kirby also suggests that Kent might have been dominating Surrey, and even the East Saxons. But that was all changing. The Kentish dynasty was dwindling, and when King Aylman vanished from the record, it looks like something serious went down. And that serious something was probably mercy and domination, because we see them directly involved in ruling Kent immediately after Aylman's disappearance, with King Offa of Mercia once again issuing charters in Kent without any hesitation. And it appears that he was treating Kent as a province of Mercia. We're not talking about subduing a sub-king. We're talking about total annexation of one of the kingdoms of the Heptarchy. That's a really big deal. I mean, it looks like the royal dynasties of Hawissa and Sussex at least survived as aldermen, basically upper-level non-royal nobility. But the Kentish dynasty pretty much vanished. And actually, Kent quickly became the go-to place to send Mercian nobles who wanted to get experience and have a place of authority. So that's an alarming new development in Mercian politics, since even in the days of Penda, we didn't see this sort of behavior. And this shift in policy towards Kent might have been due to the utter disintegration of the royal dynasty. If their ruling class imploded, and it certainly looks like it did, it wouldn't have been all that hard for Offa to stretch his umbrella over the southeastern kingdom. 
Without a clear line of succession through an old royal dynasty, there just wouldn't have been much for the people of Kent to rally around. But the takeaway is that by 785, Mercia was thoroughly dominating the South. Now that Offa's kingdom was stable and organized, it allowed him to tighten his grip on some of his neighboring kingdoms. And it had the additional side effect of increasing the conflict between Mercia and Canterbury. Things between King Offa and Archbishop Jambert of Canterbury had been tense for quite a while now. Offa was likely less than pleased with Jambert. I mean, the Archbishop was minting his own coins, and it looks like he supported the apparently successful Kentish Rebellion. Oh, and then he had that whole mess with the rumor about Offa and Charlemagne wanting to overthrow the Pope. And you know that Offa must have at least suspected that Jambert had a hand in it. So things weren't going well in that direction. Meanwhile, Jambert was likely upset about the mercy and domination of Kent that happened early in his tenure. And he also was probably a bit sore about the ecclesiastical councils in the early 780s. Now, the reason that he was probably upset was that Offa had possession of the monastery at Cookham, and Jambert wanted it. So Jambert went and convened some ecclesiastical councils and made his requests. The trouble was that Offa was presiding over those same councils, and he was stunningly powerful, so it's doubtful that anyone really wanted to be on his bad side, especially with him sitting right there. It'll surprise no one that Jambert's requests were denied, and he was pretty grumpy about it. And now, despite the brief period of Kentish independence, Mercia was once again ruling over the southeastern kingdom. And this time, it seemed like it would be permanent, with the royal dynasty vanishing. And that seems to have been the last straw for Archbishop Jambert of Canterbury. And you might be thinking, whatever, what can one grumpy priest do when he's contending with King Offa? Well, it turns out quite a lot. Offa might have survived civil war, inter-kingdom war, and papal intrigue, but he was still vulnerable in one specific way. Succession. Offa had a son, Egfrith, and he was obsessed with making sure that he inherited the kingdom. And in the Heptarchy, agnatic primogeniture, basically things passing to the firstborn son, was not a guaranteed thing. Hell, even distant cousins from a single night of passion in a nunnery could have a claim in the Heptarchy, at least the way things have been running so far. So, Offa wanted to fix that. And the way he planned on fixing it was by using the same method as Charlemagne, getting a holy man to consecrate his successor. The trouble was that the best person to do that was, you guessed it, that same grumpy priest, Archbishop Jambert. And he was not having it. But what can you do? You can't force an archbishop to do a religious rite. So that was a problem for Offa. And it seems like he either needed to make friends with this priest, or he needed to find a way around him. And as luck would have it, that following year, 786, a papal legate was sent to Britain. A legate is basically the personal emissary of the Pope. They're sent there to act on his behalf. So that's a big deal. And there actually hadn't been a papal legate to Britain since Augustine's mission nearly 200 years earlier. And the fact that one was being sent within a year of that drama over the letter might reflect the Pope's nervousness regarding the rumors of Offa wanting to work with Charlemagne and install a Frankish Pope. But whatever. So a legate was sent. And George of Ostia, 
who is an old man with long experience in papal business, and Bishop Theophylact of Todi were dispatched. Selecting Ostia highlights how important the Pope felt this mission was, since he was well regarded in the papal circles, and the trip would have been arduous for a man of his age. And apparently it wasn't just the Pope who thought this was important, because they didn't go alone. Our favorite Northumbrian monk, Alcuin, as well as Abbot Wigbod, who was there representing Charlemagne, accompanied the legate. And can we take a moment to highlight how strange it is that Charlemagne had his own representatives present for a papal legate to Britain? Even this early in his reign, he was sort of acting like an emperor. I just thought it was kind of interesting to point out. Anyway, messages were sent ahead of the legate, notifying Archbishop Jambert of their mission and instructing him to prepare. Upon the arrival of the legate, they went straight to the archbishop and advised him, quote, of those things that were necessary, end quote. Well, that's about as clear as mud. And they don't detail what exactly those things were and why they were necessary. But it basically sounds like the first stop was to give the archbishop his marching orders, and then they probably informed him why they were there. Now, their purpose was multifold. In some accounts, we read that they had come to renew the friendship between Rome and England, which does make sense if the Pope had the heebie-jeebies. In others, we read that they sought to bring canons for the clergy and nobility in England and reform the kingdoms and, quote, uproot completely anything harmful, end quote. And that also sounds rather believable. It's not like the English clergy had the best of reputations. Alcuin and Bede were somewhat outliers. We had quite a lot of drinking going on. So when explaining their mission to Jambert, that might have come out. The two men also likely asked Jambert quite a lot of questions regarding Britain, seeking to get a sense of what to expect. After all, this would have been an unknown and wild land to them. And I wonder if, after speaking with Archbishop Jambert, they expected King Offa to be terrifying and hostile to the emissaries of the Pope. Leaving Canterbury might have been a bit nerve-wracking, especially considering that Offa was their next stop. But it couldn't be avoided. We aren't given many details of their meeting with Offa, but based upon how things shook out, it seems likely that in Offa they found a welcome ally who had simply grown tired of the Archbishop of Canterbury and wanted help in dealing with him. But... The Pope didn't send George of Ostia all that way merely to mediate an argument between two headstrong men. So after visiting Offa, the papal legate split up, with Theophylact visiting Mercia and, quote, parts of Britain, end quote. The parts of Britain suggest that he went to some of the Welsh territories. Meanwhile, George of Ostia headed to Northumbria and to the court of King Aelfwald, as well as to visit Archbishop Eambald of York. Now, unfortunately, we don't have an account of Theophylact's visit to Mercia and the other areas, but George does give us a decent account of his trip north. A council was held in Northumbria, and there they talked about the matters that concerned Rome. During that council, a series of canons were drafted, possibly with Alcuin's help, as he was present. And then George and Alcuin returned south and formed a great southern council in which all the southern bishops, as well as King Offa of Mercia and Chinnewulf of Wessex, were present. And of course, Archbishop Jambert was there. And once they were all gathered, they went about their business. There were 20 canons in total that came from that council, and half were concerned with ecclesiastical matters 
basically how the church should behave, holding synods and that sort of thing. And the other half were focused upon secular matters. Yep, the church was fully weighing in on secular matters, but I suppose that's only fair since secular rulers like Offa were busy weighing in on church matters. Now, what's lacking in the record are the minutiae of what was going on here. Ostia doesn't appear to have felt it was worth recording, but from our vantage point over a thousand years later, it really would have been nice to have a few more facts. But at least we have the canons themselves. The kings and princes were told that they needed to obey the bishops, suppress violence, be just with the poor, and take no more from the church than they would be allowed by Roman law and by Roman emperors. The council also emphasized the importance of kings as the Lord's anointed. They stated that, quote, let no one conspire to kill a king, for he is the Lord's anointed, end quote. Did he catch the subtext of that? In addition to condemning regicide, the legate and the council were basically endorsing Offa's plan to anoint Egbert. This was great news for Offa, though you can imagine that Archbishop Jambert must have been grinding his teeth. The council also stated that, quote, kings are to be lawfully chosen by the priests and elders of the people and are not to be those begotten in adultery or incest, end quote. Further, irregular marriages and, quote, heathen practices were forbidden. This was the first statement in Western Europe about the principle that only children of legitimate marriages could inherit. Until this moment, individuals like Aldfrith of Northumbria weren't all that rare. But now, they were essentially outlawed. You can all but see Offa's hand on that particular canon, can't you? He and Queen Chinnithrith were part of a recognized marriage, and he was every bit monogamous as Ethelbald was a partier. If adultery, irregular marriages, and heathen practices were okay, then Ethelbald's heirs would be legion. And while Offa seems to have been working hard to eliminate that part of the family tree, how could he be sure that he got everybody? Well, now it wouldn't matter all that much if one of the sons of Ethelbald escaped, because according to God, any of Ethelbald's offspring were no longer fit to rule. Offa got exactly what he wanted, an approval for Egfrith's anointing and the disqualification for many of his son's potential rivals. Oh, and while I was talking about the canons, did he hear me mention that the council gave the monastery at Cookham to Jambert? Yeah, I didn't either. And given the fact that Jambert had been repeatedly seeking that land grant in other councils, there's no reason to think that he didn't ask for it in this one. But nothing for Jambert, and plenty of goodies going to Offa. The archbishop had been outmaneuvered. And to keep the Pope happy, King Offa also promised to send Rome a substantial tithe each year. And it's thought that this was, at least in part, to secure papal support for his plans for a new archbishopric in the Midlands. If Jambert wouldn't play nice, he'd just go around him. But that would have to be dealt with in the next council. For now, the council was disbanded, and everyone went home. The legate headed back to Rome, Alcuin went to Francia, Offa to Mercia, Jambert to Canterbury, and Chinewulf went back to Wessex. King Chinewulf has popped up occasionally in this story, and actually, he's been on the throne for as long as Offa has. 
For the entirety of Offa's reign, Chinwolf has been on his southern border. And the sense that we've been getting is that he was a powerful king, and he also appears to have been rather good for the West Saxons. However, not everyone was a fan of his rule. In particular, there was one family that had it out for him. You might remember that back in about 755, the previous king, Sigebert of Wessex, was deposed and driven out of the kingdom. For those of you who are a bit lost, this was the guy who ruled for a couple years, was accused of murder, and then the nobles got together and said, you're done. But Sigebert didn't feel like he really was done and he put up a fight. It might have gone on for a while, but scholars suspect that King Aethelbald of Mercia sided with Chinewulf and the nobility. And after a short while, Sigebert was driven out and eventually killed. And Chinewulf was crowned king. Well, even though it happened about 30 years ago, and Wessex was doing pretty well under King Chinewulf, Sigebert's brother, a guy named Chinnaherd, was still pretty miffed and was looking for some payback. I get the family's family and something like that isn't ever going to be okay, but waiting 30 years is one hell of a slow burn, especially for a blood feud. But apparently, that's how it played out. And it seems like this blood feud was pretty common knowledge. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, even King Chinwolf knew about it and planned on banishing Chinnaherd from the kingdom. Eventually. However... He had things he wanted to handle first. In particular, he really wanted to visit his mistress at Merton. And it seems that King Chinnawolf was trying to keep this secret, because he only brought a small retinue with him. Or, maybe he was open about it, and the small number of companions were simply due to Chinnawolf only bringing the best and brightest of the womanizers in court. Who knows? But yeah, instead of banishing this eighthling who was open about wanting him dead... He was out with a few friends, doing what men in power have done since the dawn of time. The king really should have thought this through, but maybe he's feeling a bit lightheaded because his blood was elsewhere. Whatever the case, Chinnaherd caught wind of it and knew that this was his best chance to catch the king with his pants down. So he and his men surrounded the building where the king was. Having that many armed men encircle a building is going to make a lot of noise, and so King Chinnawolf soon realized what was happening and went to the door to defend himself. The king was largely alone, being that the rest of his companions were in various other buildings in the village with the locals. But Chinnawolf wasn't a wallflower. He was a battle-hardened king. He wouldn't go down easily. A fight broke out, and the commotion from the battle and the screams from the king's mistress finally drew Chinnawolf's thanes away from their revelry and they armed themselves as quickly as they could. Meanwhile, we're told that the king fought valiantly and held his ground against the forces of his enemy. And then, at last, he spotted his rival, Chinnaherd, in the melee. Seeing his chance to end this quickly, King Chinnawolf rushed forward, wounding Chinnaherd. However, there were just too many warriors surrounding him and the king was struck down in the process. Chinnaherd was triumphant, but any celebrations were cut short as the king's thanes, now fully armed, arrived and saw their liege laying dead at this rival aethling's feet. Even though the king fought well, Chinnaherd's forces dwarfed the small retinue that the king had brought with him. 
The Thanes knew that they had little chance in open combat against such a force. And Chinnaherd knew this too, and he urged them to lay down their weapons. He even offered to pay them a bribe if they would surrender. But these were the king's men, and even though he lay dead, their bonds of fealty remained. The Thanes charged, and the battle continued until all of the king's men lay dead. Once again, Chinnaherd was victorious. And you can imagine that the mood must have been a mix of celebration and fear, because it was obvious the word would spread. They caught the king unawares and poorly defended, but even that small group of nobles fought to the death just over the memory of their fallen leader. What would the rest of the nobility do once they heard of this? It wasn't like they could keep this secret. And sure enough, the next day, the rest of the king's men, including Osric, the second in command, heard of the attack, grabbed their weapons, and rode to Merton. This was not great news for Chinnaherd. He had 84 men serving him, an impressive warband, but it was not a guarantee of victory, especially if all the nobility of Wessex was stirred up against him. So he ordered the gates of the town shut and prepared his defense. As the king's men approached, Chinnaherd shouted over the walls that they would be rewarded with as much land and money as they wanted if they would just give the kingdom to him. That was the carrot. Undeterred, Osric and his warband dismounted and advanced to the walls. So then Chinnaherd tried the stick, and he told them that his warband included family members of the same thanes that were standing with Osric. If they wanted to defeat Chinnaherd, they would be fighting and killing their own kin. Osric and his thanes stood firm, shouting back that, quote, no kinsman was dearer to them than their lord, and they would never serve his slayer, end quote. And if any of their kin serving Chinnaherd wanted to surrender, they could come out now and they would be unharmed. The rebels shrugged it off and boasted that they made the same offer to the king's men the night before, right before they killed them and that they were just as unlikely to abandon Chinnaherd. Osric heard enough and ordered the attack. The gates couldn't hold against the warband, and soon they were breached. The fighting was fierce and brutal, family member against family member. And in the end, Chinnaherd and all 84 of his men were slain. Only Osric's godson was spared, though even he was grievously wounded. Osric was triumphant. Though, despite the fact that he was second in command, and even though he valiantly defended his king's memory, the throne didn't pass to Osric. Instead, it went to Bjortric, who was from an unknown ancestry, and not everyone was happy about this move. In particular, Egbert, son of King Aelmund of Kent, really didn't like the idea of this King Bjortric, son of God knows who, ruling over Wessex. And he kicked up a bit of a fuss. Things in Wessex were once again getting entirely out of hand. But civil war spells opportunity, and Offa was never one to miss an opportunity. So fresh off his victories over both the Archbishop of Canterbury and over Kent itself, Offa marshaled his warbands and intervened in the West Saxon civil war and he supported 
King Bjortrick of Wessex. We aren't told why Offa sided with Bjortrick, but given that Egbert was the son of King Aelmund of Kent, it's suggested that Offa might have been seeking to eliminate the last portions of the old Kentish dynasty. And Bjortrick, with the help of Mercia, drove Egbert out of the kingdom. At last, Offa had a secure southern border, with an annexed Kent and a friendly king on the throne of Wessex. But the story of Egbert the Exile doesn't end there. After all, when the most powerful king in Britain wants you dead, where do you go? Well, it seems the continent was a pretty popular destination. So Egbert followed in the footsteps of various English nobles who fled to Francia after failed power plays. It was a smart move by Egbert, but the fact that Charlemagne allowed it must have really rubbed Offa the wrong way. This guy was a threat to everything that Offa was building, and Charlemagne was just allowing him to continue breathing. And that makes me wonder if things were starting to become really tense between Offa and Charlemagne. We'll cover more of that next week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, pretty much everything. And you can find all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening.